Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman, where physicians and professors at Yale University were trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Michael Olasco. But first, I'd like to check in on current health news. And I know there was a study that you pointed out to me, Harlan, that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, there was a study that came out uh, this week in JAMA uh, that had been presented at the American College of Cardiology meetings that was about whether or not we should be treating to target with lipid levels. Most people are familiar with this idea that you come in, you get your cholesterol level checked, and if it's elevated, and especially if you've got heart disease, people may, the clinicians may recommend to you to have your blood levels reduced to a certain target level. And often now people are talking about getting people under 70, for example, under 70 milligrams per deciliter of LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. But the thing is that really all the cholesterol trials uh, were about giving people a, a cholesterol pill and seeing whether or not that reduced their risk. That is, they weren't trials that were testing whether or not getting people to a certain number was actually better. By the way, we have these studies in hypertension. Does getting people down to 120 to 130, is that better than 130 to 140? We have these in, in diabetes yeah. where we saw whether or not pushing people's hemoglobin A1C, an indicator of their blood glucose levels, down lower among people with type 2 diabetes would be better. In that case, in hypertension's case, right, it was not. better. In, in diabetes, it, it wasn't. But in cholesterol, we really haven't had these kind of trials. And and so a lot of times the guidelines will tell you to try to get to a certain level, but it's not based on a clinical trial. It's based on extrapolation of other evidence. It's not an, an unreasonable extrapolation, but it's still an extrapolation. So investigators from Korea took it upon themselves to do a study in which they randomized people to either trying to get them to a, a target level between 50 and 70, or to just simply give them a high intensity uh, statin. And and that means, you know, for example, a torvastatin, Lipitor, you know, and giving it at higher dose or a suvastatin. Or, these are sort of more potent statins uh, and especially at higher doses. And, and so they made this comparison. And this was in a bunch of people with coronary artery disease. So people who did have heart disease. And, you know, the, I won't get into the mechanics of the trial, but basically they were trying to demonstrate whether these were not any significantly different from each other, rather than trying to show one is better than the other. The question was, were these going to be about the same? And so they looked at, at a three-year outcome of all-cause death, heart attack, stroke, and, and having bypass surgery or, or PCI, you know, having a stent placed. And what they saw was really there was no difference, no difference at all between the two, two groups. And you know, so for all the commotion about we got to get you down to a certain level, honestly, just putting people on a high intensity statin produced about the same benefit. Now, interestingly, this group in their conclusion was sort of saying this is an endorsement of the target level because it's not inferior to just giving a high intensity statin. I actually took it the other way, which is just Me like too. set it and forget it. You know, it's like I know. somebody comes in. I don't have to have them continue to come in repetitively to keep checking cholesterol levels, titrating them. You know, that was my the, question. Yeah, that was my question for you. So I'm on high dose uh, simvastatin, basically on the 40 milligrams, which is a reasonably high dose. I've been on it for a long time. I went on it because I had a very high cholesterol, and my father had a heart attack at below the age of 50. I felt like I was at high risk. 
And I've, you know, I've no side effects from it that really bother me. So I've sort of just left it alone. So my question for you is, does this change anything for me? And I think you're telling me no. Yeah, I, I mean, I sort of like what it is. It sort of endorses this idea that, that yeah, like I said, you know, I don't know what, what was that like some microwave oven or something. People used to say, "Set it and forget it." You know, you know, when they were making in the kitchen. Yeah. It's like this strategy is that instead of a lot of effort to try to titrate and get to a right number, you're just putting people on high high intensity statins, people who are at risk, it seems to help them. I've often thought about these statin drugs, as you know, as risk reducing drugs rather than cholesterol drugs. I mean, their mechanism is through the cholesterol, but I mean, mostly think about you've got a high risk. Here's an opportunity for you to lower your risk. That's what these drugs do. I sure hope so. Yeah. I sure hope so. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure, Howie, you're doing the right thing. But anyway, I thought it was an interesting study for folks to hear about who may be seeing people who are in chasing numbers, but actually this looks like uh, just... Just the drug itself was was good enough. Hey, let's um let's pivot and, and get to our guest. I'm really eager today because uh, th- this is just a terrific topic about the issue of this repetitive head injury, and you know also relevance to professional sports, amateur sports, and other other ways that people bump their heads. So uh, yeah, let's get moving. Dr. Michael Olasco is a clinical neuropsychologist and the co-director of the Boston University. Alzheimer's Disease Research Center Clinical Corps and lead investigator of the Boston University Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy Center. He's an associate professor of neurology at Boston University School of Medicine and the principal investigator of multiple NIH-funded grants. His research focuses on the relationship between repetitive head impacts and traumatic brain injury with later life cognitive decline and neurodegenerative diseases. He studies chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which we call CTE, and Alzheimer's disease, as well as Alzheimer's disease-related dementias. He is the author of more than 150 peer-reviewed publications and is the co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Adult Cognitive Disorders. He received his undergraduate degree at Providence College and his doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Kent State University. He completed a clinical internship in neuropsychology at VA Boston Healthcare System. So we've eagerly awaited you as a guest on the Health and Veritas podcast. So first, I just want to say welcome. You have been part of a community of scientists who have helped us understand the mechanisms and epidemiology of repetitive head impacts and long-term adverse cognitive and behavioral outcomes, primarily in American footballers. Can you just walk us through what the key findings of your own center's work are? Of course. First, thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be here and talk about this important topic. So repetitive head impacts first, what is it? It's just like it sounds, repeated hits to the head. It can be from any source. In American football, we're talking about those hits to the head that happen on every down, every game, every play. What we find in in our studies is that it is these repeated head impacts that are the primary risk factor for the neurodegenerative disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And in particular, the more years of exposure to these head impacts or the more years of American football play is associated with an increased risk for this disease. There's a dose response relationship. It's so great to have you on. And uh, let, let me just get to some basic things. So um, I think people have heard a lot about these extreme cases, both when, when you know horrific acts occur perhaps someone like Junior Seau taking his life or, you know, prominent football players, people we know, names we're familiar with in some horrific 
thing happens that seems out of character and, and then ultimately gets attributed to these repetitive head injuries as evidenced on the autopsy study. But do you have any sense of what percent of, for example, people who've played in the NFL actually have experienced some form of this? Because we, like I said, we hear about the extreme cases, but what about in the mainstream? I mean, what percent of people are actually suffering some of these effects, maybe even, you know, not, not quite at the far end of the spectrum. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And, and to be completely honest, I don't think we know the answer. Um, what we see in our center are people who come to us and are more likely to have symptoms, right? They're more likely to have problems. And so while we see it quite frequently, that number is not necessarily representative of what's out there in the general population. So are you seeing some people come to see you who don't have extreme symptoms, but then when they ultimately pass and you do autopsies, you're seeing evidence of it? So it, even people who may think that they, they aren't being affected actually right. have pathologic evidence of it? I mean, mo most of the people who come here have symptoms. I mean, there are there is a continuum, and we do see it in people who, who have mild symptoms. But, but I would say for the most part, people who are coming here have some level of concern. And, and you have an actual brain bank, right? You have a, a collection of pathological specimens and you've documented that some footballers, some people who've even played for many years, don't at least have pathology associated with CT. Is that, is that correct? Or could you tell us what that has shown? Right, so we have a brain bank uh, at the BUCT Center where we essentially are, are, it's all people who are exposed to these repetitive head injuries. It's actually the largest in the world of its kind. We have over 1,300 brain donors. Um, and, and yeah, so we, we do have people who've had years of exposure to these repetitive head injuries, but don't have CT at autopsy. And I think that's a really important point. And among, among those do we know if some of them had symptoms that still might have been associated with this? Or are there other things that are sort of subpathological that may represent long-term damage? Right. So it becomes really complicated at this point. So, so you can have the path where you go on to develop that neurodegenerative disease known as CTE. But we're also seeing that these repetitive head impacts can lead to other types of injuries to the brain. So if you think about our brain, we have gray and white matter. We've shown studies where the white matter of the brain can be particularly hurt by the repetitive head injury. That can lead to symptoms. Then there's a third potential path. People who go and play football tend to be more aggressive to begin with. This is kind of who these people are. So maybe as they get older with age, some of these already traits that are there come out even more. So... Here's a question. Do you watch football? Are you a fan? So I have watched football and I would say I was a fan and I would say that I've lost joy in watching the game, uh, you know, in, in part because I'm thinking about the science a lot. Yeah. 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 You know, I remember uh, when I was in high school, you know, we had a drill in, on the football team and and, and something that uh, was sort of celebrated, which was, you know, people were identified. Uh, to stand and hold the ball and then people would run at them from like 60 70 yards away and hit them as hard as they could and in the culture by the way with no guidance about how you would hit by the way let alone the neck vulnerability but i mean you know for the repetitive head injuries and the culture was that you needed to learn to take a hit 
you know, and, and by the way, he needed to learn to give a hit. Right. And so, you know, I think back to that and I, I sort of shudder a little bit to think about like how we were training people to be, but, but when you, you know, have the experience of meeting these individuals and then, then being able to see ultimately the pathology in a lot of individuals who suffered as a result of being part of something like the NFL. I mean, do, do you have thoughts about what we should be doing as a society? I mean, is this like the gladiators where these people are in and, and some people are, I mean, they aren't losing their lives in the moment, but, but ultimately are putting themselves in a position where they're doing harm and we're just sitting on the sidelines cheering and right. uh and still ringing their bell you know we talk about ringing the bell you know as if that's that was a really good hit you know that yeah. was a and we celebrate that with in slow motion we watch it over and over again uh what do you think we should be doing as a society as we think about this yeah and there's I, nothing bigger than the nfl i mean this is big business baby i mean right. you know, this is the biggest sports right. enterprise in the world I, no, I, I agree with everything you said. And, you know, I think society, you know, there's kind of two components, right? Um, one is is the players or the people who engage in the sport, right? And, and people are going to do risky behaviors, whether it's football, whether it's smoking cigarettes, whatever it is, people are going to do it. But it's kind of how do you mitigate that risk, right? And so that's what really kind of the advocacy efforts are focused on with, with CTE, you know, delaying tackle football don't play in the youth level but wait till your high school level wait until you as an individual can understand the risks that come along with it and make that informed choice right so that's one component and then the other component you raised is us as fans cheering for these head impacts you know or these head you know these these players i think it's not going anywhere um and you'll have fans and and you know, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, my, me personally, as a scientist, someone who's involved in this, that's where I lose the joy, and I, and I can't make those. I can't have those cheers. In some ways, the uh, NFL is ahead of colleges in terms of paying attention to concussions. Uh, individuals have agents who are hopefully looking out for them, uh, and I believe that the NFL, um, more so than colleges, there are some leagues I think that do have this have either banned or limited the amount of impact um, practices that they have. Are there other specific mitigating um, measures that can be taken that either the NFL or colleges or even less than colleges should be taking but aren't doing at the moment to reduce the harm that comes from this? So I will say there have been steps like you just described that the NFL has made and we should applaud those steps. Um, but even with detection of concussion, we saw how all those policies failed this past year, right? right? And we can, and and we're not even talking about concussions here, right? We're talking about those repetitive head injuries. Those aren't those aren't going anywhere in the game of tackle football. A helmet's not going to stop them from happening, and, and and it's part of the game. So unless you go flag football like they did for the for the for the Pro Bowl, yeah. right? Unless you go uh, flag football, that's that you know that's what's going to happen. The cognitive impairment is just one of the things that you've been able to measure. Can you also talk about the other downstream effects? It's not just cognitive decline, right? Right. So we're still learning the specific signs and symptoms of, of this neurodegenerative disease, right? We know what this disease looks like in the brain quite quite well. 
We don't really know the specific signs and symptoms, but we're getting closer. So cognitive impairment, particularly memory problems, problems with like multitasking, problem solving, we see those quite frequently and those are quite frequently tied to, to what we see in the brain with CTE. There's this other component that we refer to as the technical term is neurobehavioral dysregulation. And you can think of that as being impulsive, trouble managing your emotions. We see this a lot, but we don't have a good understanding of what that exactly is tied to. Is that related to the what we see in the brain or other factors? You know, I, I wanted to just ask you quickly, you've, you've correlated these injuries. Now, I know we've talked a lot about the NFL, and I want to pivot off it in a second, but one final thing on it. You, you, you have related it to the number of years that you've been in the NFL. It, it does seem like different positions, so put you at different risks. I, I didn't see in your, your articles your reference to whether or not there are some positions or some, some people who are at you know particularly greater risk based on the work they see. I know you've got a selected sample people coming to you, but do you have any sense of that, whether or not there, there, there's a gradient of risk depending on where you, whether you're on the offensive line or whether or not you're a receiver, yeah. running back? Yeah. At least through the generation of people we're studying, so remember these are tend to be older individuals, so they played a while ago. We don't see actually positional uh, differences in our in our effects. Um, our strongest relationship so far has been with the number of years played. And and you do capture that information. The posi- position we do capture That's position, awesome. yeah. And and we've talked a lot here about the NFL, but you know, I've, I, I, it does seem to me like there's so many different activities that that may put people in a position of risk i mean gee you know we teach people how to do headers in in soccer and you know that that seems to me to be something that you know over a period of time can can also cause trouble is there any evidence that soccer players are also experiencing this yeah so i have two points there so one yes we we've seen it in soccer players um and we've seen kind of these large kind of more epidemiological studies that also show Soccer players are at higher risk for for death from neurodegenerative disease, these mortality-based studies, right? So we have seen it in other sports besides football. The other, the other comment I want to make, too, is that um, we talk about professional footballs, people who play in the NFL, but we see it at the amateur levels. And, you know, there's only a very small portion of the population who goes on to these elite levels. Right. We really need to focus on college and high school because that's the, that's, that's what the worries me the, the most. That's what worries yeah. me the most. And we have kids that are having multiple, multiple impacts for three, four or five years uh, or longer. And we're not treating them the same way. They don't have agents. They don't have somebody pulling them out every time they have a concussion as much. And are, are you looking at the I know you've done at least one large paper that's been extremely well cited, but. What, what is the evidence that we have on sort of the high school and younger population right now? So I would say that, that the risk for CT, we, we so far based on our, on our data, seems to kind of really increase once you play, you know, five or more years. So people who are playing just high school or, or below, their risk is probably low. Um, but that said, in that large study you're referring to, a high percentage of, of people who played at college level uh, had evidence of, of this progressive brain disease and millions play at the college level. So that's concerning. I have a, uh, let me just f- finish up with my soccer thing, by the way. Is there any movement to yeah. try to eliminate headers in soccer as a result of these concerns? I mean, cause you could continue to play soccer, but just not, 
you know, not penalize people who are who do headers. So, so, so the, there's been a ban of age, right? There's a ban of when you can start heading. Um, you can't, you can't head the ball. Uh, I'd have to double check, but I think 14 is is below 14. You can't head the ball. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure. Um, you know that that I made that comment before at, at, a, at a conference. I, it was in Germany, actually, and I said, you know, you can, you can, you can. <laughs> not well I said, received. I, not well received. I said, my, I think my quote was, I think my quote was. I think you can remove heading from soccer and not fundamentally change the game. And, and that did not. Oh, my out. God. Yeah. Amer <laughs> Americans are not uh, supposed to tell anybody anything about <laughs> yeah. soccer. Yeah. Well, let me ask follow up one question, because sure. I'm curious what you say about this. So how does this. So this is repetitive head injury. Sometimes, by the way, it doesn't have to be severe. It can be minor. How does this relate to traumatic brain injury? So for people who are listening, sometimes people can even get mild head trauma that is it doesn't knock them out they don't necessarily perceive it as a concussion but there can be long-term sequelae in that moment so this isn't repetitive and then downstream you know 20 years later manifesting as a problem which is more what i perceive what's happening with the cte people have a, a period of time where they're getting life injury and then later on it's manifesting but this is a situation where even you know sometimes it can be harsh trauma, but sometimes it can be light trauma. And then people have, you know, cognitive dysfunction afterwards. Are these related in any way? Yeah, that is a great question. And kind of there's there's workshops kind of going on to tease apart what is repetitive head impacts, what is TBI, right? Traumatic brain injury. So so think about repetitive head impacts as an environmental exposure. They are hits to the head. Okay. And that can be from any type of source. That hit to the head can cause a traumatic brain injury, like a mild traumatic brain injury or a concussion, right? And then, but they can also, we think, cause injury to the brain that don't result in symptoms, okay? So there's still injury, but maybe not enough to cause symptoms. But if you think about those thousands of hits that someone can have over the course of their football career or lifetime, that's a lot. And that's what we're concerned about. And or were you able to document in those cases um, any MRI or other any type of biomarkers or PET imaging? I know you're doing lots of different ways to try to measure this. Yeah. Are you seeing measures for those things? Any correlates? Yeah. So our one of our goals here is how can we accurately make a diagnosis of this disease during life? Something we can't do yet. And, and the biomarkers, right? We know, we all know what biomarkers are. Something's wrong with your heart you get an EKG, same concept, but we're looking at the brain. Um, so we look at MRIs to look at the structure of the brain. And one thing we've noticed is that the front and side parts of the brain seem to be smaller or shrink more so in, 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 in CTE. And we're looking at other kind of advanced imaging techniques that can pick up on the specific things associated with CTE too. I, I wanted just one more question from, from actually reading about you and, and the other work you've done. You've highlighted that there are large populations that we are not looking at yet outside of sports, uh, including battered women and other battered individuals, uh, obviously boxers, but I mean, other individuals in different areas. What, what, where are we with that? Are we getting good information? Are we starting to study this? Yeah, I mean, our focus has been on male football players because they offer a good way to model these repetitive head injuries. But we need to go beyond, and we are starting to get in, trying to have a real focus on females 
We're studying female soccer players, female ice hockey players. We're trying to also get into studying intimate partner violence, like you mentioned. So these are all areas that we're actively pursuing and some of which we've already started studying. When, you know, we talk about this CT, a lot of people have in their minds this from this repetitive head injury, the situation that occurred with Muhammad Ali. In that situation, he didn't seem to experience specific cognitive dysfunction as much as Parkinson's-like syndrome. Is that also part of the CTE or is that a whole nother thing? Uh, great question. So so if you think the, the concept of CTE actually goes back to the 1920s, right? And it all started in boxers. Really, CTE didn't come onto the scene until 2005 when it was found in a former NFL player. In boxers, we do tend to see a more of a motor or movement presentation. And in football players, we see this, but it's not often the kind of the initial symptom that we see. And we do think, and, and some of this is speculation, but we do think that maybe the differences in the, in the head trauma or the mechanical forces across the sports has something to do with it. Maybe they're applying different types of injuries to different parts of the brain that are responsible for movement, for example, in boxing. I think, isn't that term even like punch drunk syndrome or something? I think, which yeah. referred to boxers. Um, right. I, I, I wanted, we have only a few minutes left and I just wanted to first say, it's the first time I think Harlan and I have like competed for questions because we've been so anxiously <laughs> awaiting. We're so interested. No, in we this. really it's are. Really it's, it's, yeah. It has come up obviously for the last six months and we've been talking about it. Um, and I think my biggest question is, what would you do for your own child and what is the advice for other people? Because as you said, you can't stop people from participating in sports, but you can't stop your own child. Um, mm -hmm. And what advice would you give somebody about what types of sports you can or should not engage in? It's a really um, kind of personal decision. And I think, I think, you know, me, myself, of course, being in the field and being close to this, I would not allow my child to play American football or tackle football as a, as a youth. I think it's really important that parents are educated and that they're aware of the of what's out there. They're aware of the risks. I don't think it's fair for for parents to kind of knowing these risks to to send children who can't understand or grasp these risks to play these types of, of sports, especially football. Um, so I do really advocate for for waiting until the individuals are older uh, and before kind of engaging them in, in this types of sports. I was going to end up just asking one thing, which is of all the people you've seen and the families you've talked to, who broke your heart the most? So so I actually, you know, it's, it's not a specific story, but what breaks my heart, and we have a clinic here too at Boston Medical Center uh, where we see a lot of these individuals. And what breaks my heart is the number of people come in who lives are completely turned upside down by their symptoms and how many people they've gone through where they've kind of don't take their symptoms seriously, say this isn't, isn't real or, or critique the field of CTE or kind of invalidate what they're actually experiencing. And these people are searching for help and these people are, are, are don't have many people to turn to. And there's and in part because there's not a lot of people with the expertise in the field, admittedly, but in part because people, not all people take this seriously as well. And that really breaks my heart. And when they come to us, we provide education. We tell them what we know, what we don't know. 
And just being there to listen to them and take them seriously has been a really powerful intervention that I think everyone could learn from. If somebody wants to contact your center, uh, we'll, we'll put it in the notes for the podcast, but you want to just say like, you know, how, how someone would reach out to you? Sure. So we, we uh, if you would like, just visit our BU CTE Center website and there's contact information there for both research wise, as well as our clinic, uh, our memory and aging clinic as well. Thanks so That's much, great. Michael. I mean, like, uh, I'm yeah. not kidding. You're probably the most eagerly anticipated guest we've had all year and we've had some amazing guests and uh you did a great Howie job just insulted all of our other i know guests. a little bit but like but i but in fairness I, I, i'm going to disagree with you i anticipate i i will week. tell you in all to, to, for the honesty of our listeners when this topic first came up i had to hunt you down yeah and thanks so much a lot. thank you no Appreciate this was it. this was awesome thanks for having me it's been a pleasure howie that was a terrific interview really enjoyed unbelievable having, having mike unbelievable. here yeah, that, it, yeah. it was so much fun we could have gone on and on but uh hey let's get to your part of the podcast what's on your mind this week so this past week a judge in the u.s district court in the northern district of texas so put, put aside politics but issued a final rule is that a case. rural area howie or does that also include dallas i mean it, it, I, was I, I think that. it includes a lot of communities, but I think it is known to have a more um, conservative leaning mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. justices. So, yeah. so there is a sort of political element to it, but let's put that aside. They issued a final ruling in a case known as Braidwood Management versus Bashera. And Bashera, for our listeners, is the secretary of our Department of Health and Human Services. And this ruling removes the requirement for full coverage of many preventive services, right? So the ACA, Obamacare, required that recommendations from our U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which we abbreviate USPSTF, must be covered by insurance without co-pays or deductibles. We have a lot of evidence that shows that co-pays and deductibles reduce the use of services. So our logic is that if something is truly beneficial, if it's rated highly by this group, this a group of scientists, that the population should have no cost sharing. So they are used more, not less. This ruling, this new ruling, removes that requirement that insurance companies do not charge for these specified services. And more specifically, any recommendation made by that group after the ACA was signed, and this is a critical point, March 23rd, 2010, would lose this protection. Some of the services that may no longer have this coverage requirement are lung cancer screening, a certain drug use like tamoxifen uh, for breast cancer prevention in certain high-risk individuals, uh, and what we just talked about, statins for the use for prevention of heart disease, and pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, which we call PrEP. So more worrisome is that future recommendations or even a modification to a prior recommendation will no longer be covered. So, and, and let me just say as a caveat for slightly different reasons, PrEP is also no longer subject to any coverage at all based on religious grounds. So the first point was about co-pays and, and deductibles. For PrEP, it actually applies to whether they have to cover it at all. So let me just give a quick summary of this. I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's useful to understand the legal case and putting aside that religious objection part, is that our USPSTF members are not Senate-confirmed officers. 
despite having positions of authority that might otherwise require it according to the appointments clause of the Constitution. So our listeners might wonder why we don't just have confirmations for these individuals. And the answer is that confirmations are intensive, intrusive, and almost certainly would dissuade many, if not most, of these incredible volunteers from choosing to serve the United States in this way. The ruling's going to get appealed to the Supreme Court. It's unclear whether it will be upheld, but it is another direct threat to a key part of the ACA, and I don't believe it will be the last by any stretch. And for some context, 151 million people are covered by private insurance subject to these rules, and of those, about 100 million use one or more preventive services in a given year. So this is highly popular, and it's also widely used. So I think this is going to be a a continued interest uh, uh, to me, to I think our listeners, and I expect that we're going to continue to see attacks on valuable healthcare services. And I think that people should wake up and even realize, even though it's not going to affect them today, this is of of great concern. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, just for people listening, they should know that this U.S. Preventive Task Force, this group that carefully analyzes the literature and makes recommendations about what are the kind of things that we should be doing to keep us healthy mm-hmm. is in general fairly, I'm going to use the word conservative. I don't mean this politically, but in the sense that, yeah. that they, they tend not to recommend things unless Correct. there's actually really strong evidence there. They don't jump the gun on the evidence. It's at why all. statins, it's why statins were not recommended until like the last decade for, well, for primary prevention or that, you know, they've right. been that for a lot of things that lots of people, if anything, they're criticizing them because they're, they're slow. They insist on having strong evidence before making an endorsement. Right. And so this is why this seemed like a really good group to be the one that you would basis kind of payment policy and, and federal law on, because, you know, you, you might argue you want even more covered, but it's at least the minimum that would be covered right. from this. So to use this as the lever to undo some of these, uh, you know, benefits that people get and, and the kind of things that might, we're already facing a decrease in our life expectancy. The health of the people in this nation is already, you know, turning back. And yet, and now we're going to do more in that direction by making it more difficult for people to get preventive care. It just seems so ill-advised just for the country and, I do hope that this will be, you know, common sense will prevail and this can be taken out of politics and looked in terms of what's best for Americans and, you know, how best to agree to navigate this forward. But totally I'm really agree. so glad that you brought it up. It's such an important, such an important topic. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do to give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and now with the Yale School of Public Health. We're very glad to have Yay. them join us. Yeah, this is terrific. Yes. Yep. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing, and we wouldn't be nearly as good if we're any good at all without them. 
Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.